So tonight's reading is from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34, which is on page 1045 of our church Bibles. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have pre- then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up for, for himself but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep that passage before us as um, we think about uh, wealth and riches and the balance that there is to be set in life. Well, as I look out of my office window, which is on the north side of the annex, I can see the Basingstoke skyline and I can see how many of the buildings have changed their use over the years. The Churchill Plaza, which is probably the one you can see if you kind of get distracted and look through the clear story, it has, it's got that nice, um, what is it, Um, azure blue windows, I think. It's quite an attractive building. I don't know, I can remember it being built, actually, and they save money, as you might know, on um, not having a sprinkler system. Within two years, they regretted it as there was a fire on the third floor from the top, and you could see straight through it. So, but, but it was once the home of the Barclays Mercantile Credit, part of the big Barclays group. 
but now it's being converted into flats. Next to it is a black and white building, now residential, but once the flagship of IBM. Once the big name in computing, far more famous than Microsoft or Apple. It was one of four big uh, IBM buildings in Basingstoke, but not anymore. And there's the attractive glass building, which is now called Matrix House. Still in commercial use, but originally it was the UK headquarters of the insurance company Sun Life of Canada, now retrenched across the pond. And finally, the other one I think is quite nice is, um, is the Mountbatten House, which has the hanging gardens. It's a very attractive building. It was once the home of Arjo Wiggins, the Anglo-French specialist paper-making company, which is still in existence, but they've, uh, well, downsized to Chinham Business Park. Now, once these would have employed some of you, bright young graduates and school leavers who would have joined the companies with high expectations of a job for life, with a generous final salary pension scheme and often very rewarding employee benefits such as uh, company cars, health insurance and subsidised mortgages, but no more. 25 years ago, Charles Handy, who is something of a management guru, wrote of an interview he'd had with the head of an international pharmaceutical company who summed up his policy in this formula. A half times two times three equals P. A half times two times three equals P, which stands for half as many people paid twice as well, producing three times as much. And that equals productivity and profit. And that's what's happened. A lot of guys in, their, in, the 19, in the early 1990s were golden bowlered, really. Um, they were coming within their last decade of uh, employment. They'd been with a firm for life. But they were paid off, made redundant, often on very generous terms. Others were outsourced. Effectively, they kept their jobs, but they were working for another company on significantly reduced terms and conditions and pay and remunerations. Others just got made redundant and had to look for contract or casual work. Charles Handy talked of core managers, the subcontractors, and then the pool of casual labour. Will Hutton, who was once, the, I think, the editor of The Guardian, um, from a very different political perspective, put it like this, the 40-30-30 society, where 40% of the people are advantaged. They're in full-time employment. For, they have been for more than two years. Or they've been self-employed successfully for more than two years. Or they're in part-time work for at least five years. Then there's a 30% who are the new insecure. They're in a new job or an old job on lower pay. They are the newly self-employed or contracting, the part-timers, the temporary workers. And then there's the 30% disadvantaged, the unemployed, the inactive, economically inactive, by which they mean students, pensioners, those too ill to work, and those on welfare. So no wonder, someone whose job it was to really counsel and uh, retrain 
these people offloaded by the big blue chip companies was heard to say, to be employed is to be at risk. To be employable is to be secure. Now we should always strive to be employable as Christians. Do our best at school or college, work hard when we get a job. Without being a slave to the setup, we should seek opportunities to, to develop ourselves. Why? So that we will not only remain employable, but get promoted. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, you can influence your company for the good. You can provide for yourselves and your families. You can serve the greater good of the community. And as we are um, already seeing, the state is providing less and less. When I was at school, the government owned more than half of the entire economy of the country. They even owned tourist companies, would you believe? Things have changed. In those days, the NHS had lots of geriatric hospitals where you would be, um, really, and go and be in there for free. Now there are expensive private nursing homes. In those days, they would pay you to go to university. Your county council, the fees were all taken care of somehow or other, never knew about, never knew there were fees for university, and they give you a grant to go and live while you were there. It's a wonderful system. I bought a car when I left university, so I have a lot to be thankful for. And then, uh, but now, of course, it costs an arm and a leg. Once the NHS provided for everything, now some things you have to pay for, some perhaps not unreasonably, but of course money can always buy advantage and jump the queue. Now in the future it will be a harsher economic climate, so all the more reason why we should work hard, make the most of your God-given talent, create wealth for yourself and your family, and pay your taxes for the common good. Manage and multiply. They were the two uh, commands given by God to the first human beings. Manage the world, make the very best use of God's world. You are stewards of it. It's got a lot of potential. We are to make the best use of it. And then we are to multiply. In other words, have more children. So... Um, it's our duty as Christians to make the best use of God's world. But it's easy for greed and avarice to take charge of us. To prevent it, we should take heed of the words of Jesus that we've just had read to us in page 1045. Now, to get to this particular part of Luke, we've had the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel, which is all about the birth narratives. Then in 3 to 9, we saw Jesus' action and how people were responding to him. From 9.50 onwards, Jesus is focusing upon his teaching, and he moves towards Jerusalem to accomplish his mission. And as he does, the focus is on how a person can inherit eternal life. Eternal life comes through Jesus alone, and to reject it is to inherit eternal exclusion from him. To gain eternal life, 
we simply have to ask for it and respond by hearing and obeying what he says. Trusting him and acknowledging him will cost us, though, everything, which is a stark contrast to the Jews who thought that they could earn it. Well, Jesus earns it on the cross for us, and then he gives it to us. We, in turn, have to acknowledge that we need it and transfer both our sins and our total allegiance to him. And in return, he gives us a right relationship with God. So these two sections of Luke that we're going to take a look at help us get this balance between making the best use of our God-given talent in our working lives, in this life, and focusing our attention and our heart's desire on Jesus and the next life, eternal life. So we have the parable of the rich fool, followed by a do not worry section. So the parable of the rich fool, which is unique to Luke. You won't find it in any other of the Gospels. And someone in the crowd raises a question for Jesus to answer. Verse 1, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replies, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Perhaps Jesus is trying to draw out from this man why it is that this man is putting Jesus in such a position. What had he seen in Jesus? Or was it simply that Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, someone whom Jews would naturally look to in asking for guidance or direction on important decisions in life? Or did this man see in Jesus something more? Well, whatever reason he may have inquired of Jesus, Jesus uses it. He may have seen greed and avarice as the man's motivation for the question, and so uses it to teach his hearers about greed and the truncated view of life that it gives. Watch out, he says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. And he told them a parable, the parable of the rich fool. So we read in verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. That's good. He is using his God-given talent in partnership with God to manage the earth well, producing food for a lot of people's benefit. In fact, he's done so well, and God may have caused, of course, the climate variables to have been particularly beneficial that year for him, and it results in a bumper crop, a crop which is so great, he realized, I haven't got enough barn space to uh, store my crops. So he demolishes the old barns, built bigger ones, and store his, stores his grain in. So having built up his nice little nest egg, he decides on early retirement. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. If he was a Greek, he'd be an Epicurean. That was their particular philosophy. Well, pre-Brexit, there was a certain kind of C1. If you, there were various social classes, A, B, C, D, E, whatever. C1 are those 
that, um, well, they would early retire and they'd go to Benidorm and they drink sangria and they drive around on jet skis. Then there's a slightly more sophisticated version of the early retired. They go to Provence where they can drink the Chateau Neuf de Pape or the Côte de Rhone and they can enjoy the culinary delights and the very pleasant climate that there is in that region. But who knows when the Grim Reaper will strike and scythe us down. For this rich man, it was this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then he says, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And the answer is, who knows? But that's not the point. He certainly won't. All that effort, all that hard work, and what does he end up with? Nothing. That's not a good outcome. But, verse 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The contrast is between the material and the spiritual, the physical and the divine, oneself and God, the temporal and the eternal. Now notice he doesn't exclude one, you can actually have both. Now this guy had taken account of his needs for this world, for himself and for the present. He had invested well for this life, but he had failed to consider and invest in God and the next life. How short-sighted. For one who had so much in this life, he was faced with nothing in the next. This guy was concerned solely for himself and solely for this life. Now the correct response is not to be unconcerned for this life, but to set it in its proper place, in the hierarchy of priorities. Therefore, 21, which links the lesson from the parable to the lessons on how we're meant to live. And Jesus says there is more to life than material things, verse 23. And so does Barry Humphreys. You know, Dame Edna Everidge, in his autobiography, More Please, he wrote, I always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or real friends or guiltless pleasure or neckties or applause or unquestioning love. Of course, I've had more than my share of most of these commodities, but it always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfillment. Where was the rest? Life is more than food. The body is more than clothes. This aspect of our existence needs serious consideration. After all, we are going to be dead for a long time. So Jesus says and reminds us that we matter more to God than birds, for example, verse 24. Consider the ravens, and they're apparently the smartest of birds. They've got a big brain, comparatively. And they do not sow, and they don't reap, and they have no storerooms, and they have no barns, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birdies, Jesus is saying. 
And a similar argument he makes in relation to the clothing of the fields, temporary and beautiful. He argues that if God does that, he'll make us look good even more so. And Jesus reminds them that none of us can add an hour to our life. That's in God's hands how long we live. So too is the provision of food. Sure, we have to work hard for it, either as a farmer to grow it, or we work in some other field in order to pay the farmer for it. But whether we have drought flood, or optimal conditions. That is beyond our capacity to determine. It's all down to God, and always has been. So we can't do anything about something like these things, and so he argues that there's no point in worrying about it. Obviously, I'm not saying that we can't do anything to mitigate global warming, but in the totality of the entire climate, and going back, of course, to Jesus' day, that is a small, relatively small contribution to climate. Well, the next thing he says, it's pagan, it's unchristian to set your heart on food and drink, and so worry about it as pagans do, and who run after such things, he says. Our Heavenly Father knows that we need them. And he flags up an alternative way, another way. Not to set our hearts on or to run after. Not to focus on material, temporal concerns for oneself. But seek. And Matthew, in his account of this particular sentence, adds first. Seek first his kingdom the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given you as well. Focus on the purely material and the temporal, and we miss out on the divine and the eternal. Focusing on the divine and the eternal doesn't result in missing out on the material and the temporal. Now, how might that actually work out in practice? Well, if we do put God first then that means we live life how we were designed to live. And as all the instructions on any new appliance you get your hands on, they will read for the best results, follow the maker's instructions. So made in the image of God and uh, capitalizing on what you've been created with, you should be creative in your management of your part of God's world. You will want to make the best use of your God-given talent. You will be honest. And if you are honest, people will not only want to trade with you or do business with you, they'll want to employ you. You will not be greedy. You're not likely to uh, do too much of the borrowing and buying, which will be more expensive, you will save and invest. You may even have um, the providence of God come, in the providence of God, come into an inheritance. And instead of blowing it, 
on depreciating assets, you save and invest in appreciating ones so that you prosper. You may receive some out of the blue act of kindness or generosity. Or, of course, you may give some act of kindness or generosity. What, of course, you mustn't ever do is to drop dirty great big hints about your needs or would they be wants in order to get given those things. I've been guilty of that once and my wife's ticked me off and I'm never allowed to do it again. Is that in the days when um, we had four young children and she'd go off on the women's weekend about sort of three or four weeks in advance, I'd make some little kind of sort of line about, you know, starving children or something. And uh, never failed, really. I would always get invited to lunch or a casserole would be brought round that she thought that was dreadful, which it probably was, really. But, you know, I was many years a bachelor. I can ooze patheticness like nobody else, really. Anyway, back to this here. Verse 32, we shouldn't do that. So, I have plenty of experience of doing that, so don't. So, um, well, food comes in anyway, not other things. Anyway, so verse 32, nothing to worry about. Your father has given you the kingdom. He'll make sure you get what you need. So that means you too can afford to be generous to those who are poor. Now, in some ways, we are all compulsorily generous because we have a thing called taxation. But in the fellowship of the Christian community, local or wider, there are opportunities to meet the needs of others and, of course, fund God's work in God's world. You see, notice when it says, sell your possessions, it doesn't actually say, all your possessions. You see, banks were probably around in the first century, but most people didn't have their wealth in vaults. They had their wealth in land and property and possessions and goods and transport. So they would, of course, have needed to sell something off in order to liquidate some assets to be able to give away. Selling some and being generous should not negate being prudent. The book of Proverbs is stuffed full about being prudent. So applied to us, it would be to have life insurance. If you, are, um, if you have a young family, it would be very irresponsible not to have some life insurance. Imagine if one of you dies and you've got kids to bring up. You're going to need some money. That's why life insurance is a very useful thing. Or if you're at the other end of life, you know, to have planned for your retirement and to have had a pension provision organised. After all, you could be retired for as long as you worked. We have a duty to provide for our families. Indeed, we're said to be worse than unbelievers if we don't provide for them. And we are meant to enjoy life. The first thing we record Jesus doing in John's Gospel is going to a party, to a wedding reception. And he enjoyed breaks away from active ministry, time to get relaxed and refreshed. Do that, 33. Put God, his plans, his purposes, his poor first. Invest in that 
And it won't be a case of uh, putting your coins in a little leather purse, which eventually will wear a hole in it and your wealth will drop out. No, investment in heaven will never run out. It will never be lost. There's no thief who can get at it, unlike material possessions, Jesus says. No moth can just destroy your most expensive dresses or suits. And note, it is where your treasure is, there is your heart. It's not where your heart is, your treasure is. Now, why is that? Our hearts, as Scripture warns us, can be deceitful more than anything else. In other words, our hearts can deceive us so that we desire the wrong things and make the wrong investments. But judged by what we do, we can see whether they match God's concerns. As someone said, the nature of one's heart is reflected in the things that one values most. If Jesus Christ and his concerns are the primary desire of our hearts, if they are at the centre of our being, if they constitute our deepest desires, if our reason, convictions, emotions and will have him and his kingdom first, then he promises that the rest, all these things, will follow. There was a wealthy English baron called Fitzgerald in the 19th century. He uh, had land in Ireland and he had an only son. The son had left home and died while away from home. Fitzgerald never got over the loss of his son, his only heir. As his wealth increased, Fitzgerald continued to invest in paintings by the great masters. At his death, his will called for all his paintings to be sold. Because of the quality of the art, a message was sent to collectors and museums, and a great crowd gathered for what was an amazing auction. When the day of the auction came, the large crowd assembled. The solicitor read from the will of Fitzgerald. It instructed that the first painting to be sold was the painting of my beloved son. The painting was from an unknown painter and of poor quality. The only bidder was an old servant who had known the boy and loved him. For a small sum of money, he bought it for its sentimental value and for the memories it held. The solicitor again read from the will, whoever buys my son gets all. The auction is over. We need to focus on eternal life, which begins now uh, in this world and continues forever in the next world. It is that which we should be most concerned about. Focus on this world, this life, and the things of it, and we risk missing out on the next life. We are not to be unconcerned, though, about this life. We have a duty to make the most of it, to provide for ourselves, not to be a burden on others. But the strange thing is that if we put God and his kingdom first, all these other needs come as part of the package. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
and all these things will be added to you. Amen.